welcome to the City of Marion Library's podcast channel and our inaugural episode. We were thrilled and honoured when Carrie Ann Kennerly chose our venue as her only stop in South Australia to talk about her autobiography, A Bold Life. Listen in as she chats with ABC's Allie Clark. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. <laughs> that was my best time step. It was excellent. Hey, Ali. It was absolutely Anybody hear Ali and I talking this morning on ABC? Yeah. Excellent. You've got to listen to her more because she's fabulous. Oh. Hey, what a great room. It's a bit like Las Vegas, except there's no wine. <laughs> How are you all? Excellent. It's good to see you. And it is absolutely lovely to be here. As Kerry ann just said, I am Ali Clark from ABC Radio Adelaide's Breakfast Show. And uh, it's my absolute pleasure to be here, although if I'm honest, I'm intimidated as anything because oh, this lady has interviewed prime ministers and treasurers and celebrities and sports stars and so many people she actually had to read through the pictures in her book <laughs> to remind herself. Um, and quite often I say to my husband at times, geez, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of that moment or at that meeting. But frankly, I think I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall of her entire life. And thankfully, thanks to her autobiography, A Bold Life, Carrie ann Kennelly has allowed all of us to do that. So please, welcome her to Adelaide. Thank you. Now, that lady who just walked in and sat down, she's got wine. <laughs> well done. Excellent. Very good. So I guess you wondered why we've gathered you here today. <laughs> Let's start. That, that's a bit loud. Am I booming? It's annoying. I, but well, You're I can right. be annoying. Everyone's it's not the first time. No, it's um, all the mic. It's all the mic. What was it like growing up in Brisbane? Bris Vegas, as I like to call it. It wasn't Bris Vegas when I was there. <laughs> Brisbane was just the, uh, the wonderful, well, Sandgate, where I grew up. Uh, was the quintessential Aussie childhood. Um, it was just fab. Great mum and dad, uh, you know, two brothers, a sister. Um, dad had uh, a little concreting business and he also was a boy from the Darling Downs. So he, uh, he bought a 17-acre farm where we grew uh, pumpkins and tomatoes. So when they were ready to be picked, we all got into the car and off we went. We had to go and pick and pack and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we all worked. The work ethic was um, what we did as a family. Um, and it was just, you know, we'd walk to school and then when I went to high school, Sandgate High, we, we rode to school on a bicycle, no helmets. I could sue now. <laughs> How we actually, you know, in the era when there were no seatbelts in cars. We survived, though. Somehow yeah. we actually got there. My favourite was when you went to get, a, you know, you'd go down the beach all day and you'd come back red, raw and burnt. And mum would look at you and say, oh, you got some great colour today, darling. Yeah, I you look so healthy. So true. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd go to the beach because uh, we used to get, if, if Dad had had a good year, we'd go down to Corumban and Tugan on the Gold Coast for a couple of weeks holiday. And you'd get so burned out there. Then the whole family would play. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how much skin can we tear off? Oh, <laughs> those were the days. So from those very classy days of pulling your burnt skin off 
the back of your body. Um, when did you know, though, that you had to be on stage? Because that's what it was for you, wasn't it? There was just no question about it. At, even at the, at the expense of your younger sister, you were going to be on stage. Well, I don't remember it, but I am reliably informed by my mother and, and my sister. And she's four years older than, than um, I am. So apparently at uh, her kindergarten or no school concert. So mum has to take me, so I'm probably all of two or whatever when, when you can walk, just. Um, off we went to the, uh, the, the school concert and before mum realises, all the kids are up on stage and I clearly have looked up on the stage and I've gone, seems like a good idea. So I've gotten out of her sight and wandered up and walked on and going, yada da 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 To which really, really annoyed my sister and I spent the rest of my life doing that to her. The, your first moment where you actually, I guess, launched your career though, if you did it in the same way today, you would be lynched and it would be one of the greatest outrages of all because it was a fairly inappropriate act, mm. what you did. Uh, by today's standards. Yes, by today's standards. Mm. Okay. How I got into television in Brisbane was, apart from being annoying, um, <laughs> I kept calling Uncle Jim Ilove, who was a stalwart of the Channel Niners up there. And I used to come home from school and go... I'd like to do that. So I'd, Mum had said, well, if you want to do it, you call. Because I've gone, Mum, can't you call? No, you call if you wanted it. That was the sort of household that we had. You had to, to do and create what you wanted to create. It was their way of instilling responsibility uh, into us. And or they were way too busy. Hmm. Maybe with four children, way too busy. So, but what I entertained myself with in... in um, a little room was records, you know, the big round black vinyl things? <laughs> and I'd play those records and the number one hit at the time that particular year was My Boomerang Won't Come Back, Charlie Drake. Do you remember that? Um chakawela, um chakawela. We got a lot of trouble, Chief, on account of your son, Mac. Okay, I won't go too much further. <laughs> but I thought it was fun, so... I got my girlfriends at school for the school concert uh, to get together. I said, you've got to learn this song and we'll all mime it. So I had, you know, three of them standing at the back, um chakawela, um chakawela. And I was, of course, the lead. <laughs> Who would have Who thought? <laughs> uh, and we put our black leotards. Remember when you could only ever get black leotards? Before dance skin and mm. before everything now. And now nobody actually ever gets out of their... Leisure gear. <laughs> Does anybody dress up anymore? Really? You go out. Think everybody's so. in leisure gear, as if they've been to the to the gym. None of them have got a gym membership. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I I get we had the black leotards, everything, bit of a kangaroo skin over here, and we were black faced. I know it was you know, the, and there is a picture in the book, and I was advised by. If you, oh, you can't, you, you can't, that, that was my very, very first television appearance. There is one photograph in existence, but we were 12, we were 13. It was the number one hit around the world. Um, we, we were having fun with it. You can only insult people if you mean it as an insult. We were that young, we were naive. Today, you, could, you would never do it. But in those days, I, re I refused to actually have people 
um, actually try and put you down for what happened in that era. So it would never happen today, but then we weren't being insulting. We were actually lauding a mm. great number one world hit. And that was my very, very first television appearance at Mount Cutha. Mighty Mount Cutha. Mighty mm. Mount Cutha. Where does your drive then come from, your tenacity? I mean, tell everybody how you got an a, um, interview with Sir Vivian Richards. Considering your knowledge of cricket, of sport, of sport in general, <laughs> uh, nil, none, zilch, nada. Mm, nada. Um, well, with this particular story, okay, it was 1981. I had uh, just been invited into the Good Morning Australia team um, and I was trying to file a few stories and the meeting was on that morning and as I find out later, it was a bit of a joke, but the meeting was around and uh, the, the whole production team said, okay, um, Vivian Richards is, is in town. Um, okay, Kerry ann uh, you get on that story, would you? And I've gone, absolutely, no problem. <laughs> Ran outside, picked up a phone. Remember when you had phones? <laughs> so I call my husband, John, and say, John, Vivian Richards is in town. I, I think it's something to do with sport. <laughs> and he's gone, the world's greatest cricketer, just like one of the world's best. Oh, a guy. <laughs> Why do they call him Vivian? <laughs> So he finds out um, through Keith Miller, who was working for him, another – him I knew as a cricketer because uh, he, he was working for John, wonderful guy – that the, the whole cricket team was holed up at the Hilton Hotel uh, and mascot in Sydney. So off I went with the crew, got there. Excuse me, I'd like to speak to Vivian Richards, please. No, they're all asleep. So I bribe the guy at the counter, find out what his room number is and walk up and go. So eventually the sort of door cracks open and, and around the corner of the door is this guy with a black face. And I've gone, I didn't know he was black. John said, he's West Indian. <laughs> Another small thing that escaped my attention. Okay, so I said, excuse me, Mr. Richards, I'd, I'd really like to do an interview. I'm doing this program, Good Morning Australia. And he said, oh, thank you, thank you. He was so lovely and polite. Uh, thank you very much. But we're on our way to Adelaide for the test. I'm sorry, we really can't do that. And I've gone, <gasps> and as he closed the door, I literally put my foot in the door. And I said, I, I don't think you understand. You see, I really want this job. I need this job. If I go back to the office without this interview, uh, my career's over probably my life, but no pressure. <laughs> so he then say, looks at me and gone, uh, okay, but I'm not leaving the room. So I'm fine, crew. <laughs> so my very, and there's a picture of it here, my very, very first interview for Good Morning Australia was in bed with Vivian Richards. <laughs> and since then we have actually, we do see each other at regular golf pro-ams because he loves his golf and you're now Sir Vivian. So he mm. and I are like that. <laughs> but he's a terrific guy and uh, even for when This Is Your Life was done with me, he, he um, uh, shot something for that and I keep running into him and he is just a delightful guy who thought I was really strange. <laughs> 
you and we were laughing there at maybe your lack of knowledge and understanding of sport as such and, and Vivian Richards. But in your book, you do detail just how much work it was to do live television and just how much work needs to go into an interview if you want it to be a good one. Absolutely. Uh, from 81 to 2011, I virtually did 30 years of live television uh, five days a week. Uh, whether it, there was some radio in there, but varying shows. So when you do five days a week and even uh, revamp Saturday shows and that sort of stuff, um, and they are live. So you have sometimes anywhere between six and nine interviews per day. So you really have to do your homework. And an interview, um, especially slightly longer format interviews, are like an iceberg. What you see on television or here, even here on radio, is, is like the top of the iceberg. The rest is down there if you want to do your job properly. Because if that person turns left or right, you have to understand where they're going and know enough about them to follow. Because there's nothing worse than question one, question mm -hmm. two. It's irrelevant of what the person's talking about. You have to follow them. And try and get them energized and enthused because most of the people especially if they're they're famous um, or they're on the book trail or on a, a, a movie trail or a singer they have done interview after interview after interview and you end up getting the same thing day uh, and they want to be enthused so what you've got to do is just try and find something that gives them a blip on the scale and they will give you energy. So then let's get to some of the things that you did to find that energy. And I touched on it this morning, but the infamous Peter Costello doing the Macarena. Right, everybody remembers that. Okay, okay. we sure people. he was the treasurer of the, company, of the country. Here but, we go. You know. Your right hand, please, out the front. There. Yeah. There. Yeah. I can't even remember now. That it's one. all right. That one, yeah. um, okay, <coughs> let's face it. Uh, in... You know, this was midday times, and politicians, let's face it, are boring. Uh, they always got their 30 second grab at night, and it was done by the Laurie Oaks of the World and the Canberra Press Gallery, and they're all terribly precious um, and wonderful. But you've got a politician on your show, which is not always ideal because it's a turn off factor. It was always known as a turn off factor. Um, but yeah, I know. It's terrible. I'm very bad. But that said, it was a time where we just started to realise... Well, I started to realise, well, they can't be that boring. They must have some sort of... If you scratch the surface, there must be something under there somewhere uh, to make them interesting. And all my responsibility in terms of running a television program was to make the, the six or eight or 12 minutes really interesting for people. And he was, he's, you know, Australia's biggest accountant. Who cares? <laughs> um, and hello to all of our accountant friends. Yeah, yeah. not that there's anything wrong <laughs> with accountants. But, um, but where it started was the fact that I started to discuss with him the serious political issue of um, superannuation uh, for politicians, which is vastly different than the superannuation the rest of us enjoy. Me, us mere taxpayers. And 
it went on for a, a bit and, in fact, I was proud for a moment to say that he finally agreed to um, an inquiry which was headed by John Fay, which cost $1.8 million and took 18 months, and they all ended up saying there was nothing wrong with their superannuation. <laughs> so after that, that morning, we'd seen these two dancing uh, middle-aged Spaniards in beautiful suits. So I've said, okay, you know what we're going to do? I will say to Mr Costello after the break, do you keep up with international <laughs> issues? And you could see him going, yeah. <laughs> and I said, when we play this 10 seconds of the Macarena with these suited boys, keep the music and the volume up and then I will stand up and say, may I have this dance? And my mother always said, a man normally never refuses a girl a dance. So we stood up and that's how we did the Macarena. And now he did not like it at the time. <laughs> Executives upstairs uh, were definitely taking off their shoes, throwing them at the television screen. You got in a lot of trouble. I mean, we're laughing at this, but you mm. were hauled in and... Across the coals. Yeah. Across the coals. Uh, before the show, I went down to see Mr Costello to make sure everything was right. And as I opened the door, there's James Packer and the head of the station, CEO, David Leckie. And I've gone, I think you're right. <laughs> I'll get out of here. <laughs> now, clearly, these big boys were um, talking about whatever they may have been talking about. And they thought I had embarrassed him. He thought he was embarrassed. But fast forward a few months, and I did get hauled over the coals. You know, it was, it was miserable there for a while. Uh, then uh, I, I ran into uh, Mr Costello another time with his wife, Tanya, and I said, I do hope I'm forgiven. You know, I had to write all the letters and do all that sort of stuff and apologise. Uh, and, and I said, I hope I'm forgiven. And Tanya literally has gone... Peter, don't be ridiculous. The woman made you a star. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, but Kirian, you've got to understand, I'm a career politician. I've put down these budgets that I'm really proud of and, you know, help the country grow. And now all they say is when I walk down the street, aren't you the bloke who does the macarena, <laughs> Kirian? Are you very but they were the times. It's uh, the spin doctors now yeah. will never let that sort of stuff happen, and before that, nobody ever did it. You, politicians before that were never allowed to show a personal mm. side. You you didn't know what they gave their wife for the anniversary. You didn't know the last movie they went to see. You didn't know about who they were. So you had a feel for this person. Yes, policies are one thing. But I, I think it's important for us to know who these people mm. are. But uh, before that, nothing ever happened. And these days, they're so contained by the spin doctors, nobody gets away with anything. Mm. What, what do you think of television today? I mean, we have so many more choices now, mm. right? I mean, as long as you can work out which plug goes into where, which I can't do, apparently you can stream things. Who knew? Um, <laughs> but you have so many more options of entertainment. What do you think of Australian television now compared to when you're in what a lot of people would say would have been the heyday? Well, the heyday of free-to-air. Mm. Now it's, it is sensational because there are options. Um, and that whole streaming thing and Netflix and Stan... Um, uh, people, kids, you, 
if you've got an iPhone now, you can create your own movie, you can, you can edit everything on there, get on YouTube and become literally the overnight star. So I've got to say it's sensational. The production stuff that comes out of the United States is amazing, but what it has done is, uh, is take away the, uh, our free-to-air, which is just dumbing down, dumbing down, and dumbing down. Mm. So it, I think that's an issue. But that said, there are more people working in television uh, or on screen, behind the screen, production for, uh, research of, editing of, than ever, ever before. And there are more women out there doing it than ever had a job. So I got to say, I think it's pretty fantastic. I just don't have a job. <laughs> oh, did I just say that? <laughs> now, the good news is that, sure, this might be my job up here at the moment, but you guys aren't off the hook as well. I just want to remind you that we'll have time for questions that you can put to Carrie-Anne a little bit later on. So make sure your mind's still... Cheers to my friend yeah. who's also having a glass <laughs> of wine. Um, let's talk... I mean, well, you touched on American TV and the production values going over there. Let's talk about your trip to America because you were going to be a singer. Mm. You were absolutely going to be a singer. And as part of that, you found your first husband over there. What was that like, moving over there and that life that you ended up living? That eventually your mum came over and, you know, it was, you know, and a few of your friends and you thought, well, this is just a very weird life. Well, I sort of did five <coughs> years of, um, of television as a teenager, six years. And then I loved singing and... Oh, for an analogy, I wanted to be Olivia Newton-John. Why wouldn't you? Mm. Why wouldn't you? Who is just the most gorgeous, gorgeous person and talented beyond belief. So I started touring around Australia and New Zealand, uh, met Miss Jamaica, uh, who was Miss World then. Then I went Brisbane, New Zealand, Jamaica, New York. What could go wrong when you're 21? <laughs> <laughs> what could go wrong with that scenario? <laughs> um, and I, I met someone who had film stages, who had recording studios, who was just a, a, a larger-than-life personality, an absolute born-and-bred New Yorker, and they are different. Um, and it was this adventure for a Brisbane girl that I was, uh, I was just sucked into willingly. But it didn't all work out perfectly. And uh, I think, as we know, there are a lot of issues today with domestic violence and, and, and stuff that happens. I got involved in that. It was a horrible time, but I will never go back and say I would never do it again, simply because it made me part of... It made me a whole bunch of who I was to become. We all grow as people. Hopefully, we grow in the right direction. Uh, we learn things from our life. You Hopefully, you learn not to be uh, too devastated and wounded by issues that happen in life. You have to look on the other side and go, okay, that was horrible, but I'm going to move on and I will make it work for me. Every decade, we change our temperaments, how we deal with our friends, with our partners, with our life. So you have to actually try and learn by those experiences. You can't, you can't rewrite history. It is what it is. Get on with it and move through it. So I found it an incredibly valuable lesson. Mm. 
And not only was it valuable and shaped the way and who you are, but you also met the great love of your life, oh, didn't you? I did indeed. Mm. I met John in New York and uh, I, I was lucky enough to actually know him as a friend for about 18 months before we even started dating. And I think for me that's always been a, a great firm basis of a relationship that you know someone, who they are as, as a mate um, in all that time. And then when you fall in love, it's just like something completely different. And, you know, that was 38 years ago. And the thing I love about this is that he is a huge romantic. He mm. spoils you and he thinks things through and he's so wonderful with gifts. Mm. You, and it's so refreshing to hear this because I'm exactly the same, don't even remember dates, don't remember birthdays. Don't, until these had these iPhones, these smartphones, I used to have to steal my husband's driver's license because I knew his birthday was either September 18th or the 21st. <laughs> so, so I would grab it and then I'd go, okay, I'll put it in the diary and away I go. Yeah. But that's something that he does, but not so much for you, is yeah, it? Yeah, John know? is the absolute. Yeah. He has always been the absolute romantic and so thoughtful. Uh, about things, whereas me, he was sort of fairly lucky to get a card. <laughs> and then at Christmas, after Christmas Day, we'd we'd say, okay, we're not getting each other anything. You know, we've got the whole family. You know, one of those, let's not get each other anything. Uh, we're going to have a bit of a trip later and we'll, we'll buy something. Well, on Christmas Day, of course, I obeyed the family instruction. <laughs> Uh, luckily, he didn't. <laughs> so, yeah, I was always very spoiled. He'd think months ahead and find something that he thought um, that, that I'd like. Mm. Now, he was actually starting up Lotto over mm. in New York when you met him, mm. but it was so successful and such a money-making machine, he attracted a bit of attention from the wrong type of people. Yeah, New York, yeah. especially in the, um, the 70s, was not quite the, you know family-friendly place it is today because it has been cleaned up. But uh, John started Lotto and he's the one responsible in America now for all those states having like literally uh, half a billion dollars. Can you imagine winning half or a mm. billion dollars? Um, his jackpots in New York State when he won that uh, contract and he, he did win it as an English company up against all the Americans. And... Um, so when it all he was uh, uh, given that, he was called in by the FBI who said the numbers game is owned by the mafia. So we'll give you three telephone numbers. One is, um, gee, I'm not sure about what's happening here. Number two is, I'm really nervous about what's happening here. And the third one is, get me the hell out. <laughs> uh, because they thought that this lotto game would be impinging on the mafia's number. As it turned out, nothing uh, really uh, happened. But yes, they were pretty nervous mm. about it at the mm. time. You talk in the book about something that uh, women in the public eye have to deal with that men clearly don't. And that is the question of children. Mm. And you talk about it in the book and you make a point of saying, I've been asked and the presumptions have been made about me and why I don't have children. Was that ever hurtful to you or was it something that you just dealt with because you were very, very safe in you and John's relationship and what you wanted and where you were going to go and then obviously you lost a baby um, during pregnancy. Is it something that you can now deal with, like you said before, it's part of who you are and, um, and has made you who you are? And it was just something that you had to get through? Well, yeah, it is something you just 
have to get through. And you are right. I was very confident and safe in what John and I had. But clearly there were a lot of other people mm. uh, talking about the fact that I was childless. Um, and uh, truth be known, I'm, I'm a bit selective about what I hear and what I think. It sort of just goes over me half <laughs> the time uh, until somebody points it out to me. Um, I had someone uh, who, who worked at the network saying, uh, Kerry ann somebody's uh, doing the, what they call the roundabout. So they're basically going to do a story about you uh, being childless. And it was going, they thought it was a personal choice. And every time, and I'm sure as you do on radio, every time you, especially years ago, bring up that childless thing, oh, mm. that all come out of the woodwork and, you know, mm. a lot of people are like mm. that. Um, so she said, I know what happened with you because I lost a baby at four and a half months, and which I never discussed. So my advice is you do one story, one story only, and you never have to discuss it again. I did that. I took her advice. I had complete editorial control over it. It went out once and I never discussed it again except what I put in the book. Because when, when the sharks are circling, you have to literally put on your water wings and punch them in the face. <laughs> I hope you've got steel but light water wings yeah. through all of that. Yeah. But that's the way it was. And, and it was good advice. But that's the way people were thinking especially. It doesn't happen so much mm. uh, now. And who cares if it's somebody's choice? It didn't happen to be mine. But, you know, let people get on with it. And But I understand the curiosity that a lot of people have with public figures. But not your entire life is up for public scrutiny. And I chose not to ever discuss it again um, simply for that reason. You do it once... It's done, and every journalist that's ever asked me about that issue in my life, I refer back to, um, yeah. you know... The Women's Weekly yeah. article. Talk to me about Mike Munro and This Is Your Life, because that didn't go how you wished that it would have, did it? No. Can ever, anyone remember seeing that This Is Your Life? And, and, you, and you really wanted to be on the show. Well, you didn't. You said, no, don't ever put me on there, but you enjoyed the show and oh, the premise as it turned of it. Out. Yeah. I'd always said to John, I know how the show works because they have to have the whole family cooperation. It's got to be a big surprise. And I said, one of these days they're going to get to the bottom of the barrel and they'll ask you. <laughs> I said, I hate the whole idea about the whole thing, so just let it go. Mm. Uh, they did ask him once or twice and then finally he sort of handballed it to my sister. So... I ended up... See, this was payback for you yeah. getting on that stage way yeah. back when, wasn't it? <laughs> it well, I think it might have been. Uh, so, you know, they do what they call the sting and then you're locked away for six hours and then that night, uh, you know, you come on stage and here comes Mike Munro with the big red book and instead of having sort of 50 in the audience, I ended up with like 200 <laughs> out of Channel 9, which is great fun. And they were making a one-hour show, not a half-hour show. But a curious thing, having known him for so very, very long, and in those days, 10 days, here's a guy who's been to our house for dinner. Um, but for some weird reason, he, he decided to, you know, rewrite everything. And he went through a couple of issues about, oh, you did restless years. And 
you know, that got axed. Uh, well, I've been going for 18 years. It wasn't my fault. Mm. Um, gee, uh, good morning, Australia. And then that was axed. Oh, I think I did 12 years. I thought that was a fairly good run. Uh, and then there was midday and that was axed. And then I've gone, hold the phone. <laughs> um, and then he, his words were, and you've got to remember this never made it to air. His words were, and of course, you decided to put your career above having children. Now, hear what you just did then? That was the 140 women mm. in my audience who I thought were about to leap and lynch him. Well, I want to now. <laughs> um, what Why? Why? No Why was he doing this? No idea. He didn't stay for the after party. No, I couldn't imagine he would have <laughs> wanted to. <laughs> uh, so I just said I was shocked. I was amazingly calm and said, so, excuse me, Mike, where did you get that information from? And he's gone, well, you haven't had children, I assumed. I said, you're a journalist. You know assumptions are dangerous. And we mm. moved on. Mm. So, we might throw it open to yes, you Yes, I want questions. that's all right. Um, and I still have some others. So, you know, you're on notice. If you don't get to it, I'm definitely coming back. I've got yeah. some uh, on my sleeve. But um, if you're down the front, we'll start yes. here. And if you want to use a loud voice or there's actually there's a microphone coming around. Don't be scared. It's coming. Here it is. It's right behind you. There you go. Please stand up. I want to embarrass you. <laughs> no. You Sorry, your name is? Me. <laughs> your name is? Hi, my name's Laurel. Hi, Laurel. Um, and... What I'd like to know, I'm a survivor. I was in domestic violence from 16 to 22 years of age. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, it does change your life. And yes, it does make you more resilient. What I'd like to know is through all that time, especially being in the public eye, how did you handle the triggers? Because this is 30 years later for me and there still are sometimes, even though I think I've dealt with some things, still mm. triggers like I'm getting bullied at work. It's caused a trigger. You know, so how in the public eye did you deal with the triggers that came out as a result of domestic violence. You at 16, and I'm so sorry, at 16 that was uh, several years younger than what I was. So I guess even though I was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed and very, very naive at 22 when it started to happen to me, I think I just had that little bit more maturity um, it, at the time and for many years, I, I could feel the damage. I do know it, it made me draw a big line in the sand that nobody would ever, ever treat me like that again. Uh, and I was also very lucky to have found the most generous, kind, warm and loving soul. So I never had to worry about it again. So. I was lucky. Those triggers subsided sim simply because I had support from uh, my husband, John, and I was slightly older. But those triggers, you must recognise the triggers, know what is going to happen, and you've got to have alternatives in your own mind to how you're going to deal with it. When it's, you know, when it's happening, you go, I can do A, B or C. So then you have to take control. Bullies bully because they think they can win. They will never win if you let them. <laughs> well done. Good. Another question, maybe over here? Oh, we've got a microphone, so 
Hi, your name is? Hello, I'm Sue Sawyer. Hi, Sue. And uh, I'm curious to know how your husband's going now, because I've had a neck fusion. And I've also got something in common with you too, because I've also been a victim of domestic violence. Mm. So I can, I'm actually empathising with both you and your husband, because I know that you've been, what you've been through, I've been through too, in a strange mm. kind of way. So how is he? He is the most remarkable man. I always thought he was special. Uh, but having physically seen the excruciating pain uh, through the accident and uh, recovery operations. Um, uh, he was ventilated, being fed through uh, his nose with the tube directly into his stomach and going through all that, the neuropathic pain. So at, at this stage, uh, he's home, we're into our new norm. He can speak, he can eat, although he's only got 40% capacity. Um, uh, he, he has just got into this swing in terms of our norm. Um, we've been lucky enough to find good people who can uh, help uh, and, and deal with his uh, condition. But he is just, you know, he and I sit and watch the news, um, still argue about issues, uh, just the same as we, we always did, except I've got the remote now because he can't <laughs> use it. <laughs> You write of your incredible love story. Mm. Has the way you love John changed uh, ch changed at all? And by that, you always love him, but, you know, is there a newfound appreciation or understanding of who now he is, or is he still the same person? He, he is basically still the same mm. person. Um, he just... Uh, it, it is just the new circumstances... And with a lot of the drugs he's on, I know, uh, you know, mm. he, he wavers in, in certain ways. But most of the time, he is just right there. And I do know he gets extraordinarily frustrated. But he, he is still, his brain, he was always very bright. The brain is still there and as sharp most of the time as it ever was. And he's still telling me what to do. <laughs> So then how do you go? How are you going with it? Um, I come from a family, my parents are full-time carers for my brother, and mm. it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, it can be wearing at times. Um, but because there's no alternative, it is what you have to do. So you just uh, do the best you can and take a deep breath and, and uh, get as much help as you can. And that's not always easy in everybody's different circumstances. So you just have to get as much help as you can. Like I will feed John when I'm home on the weekends, but during the week we have someone who gives him lunch and gives him dinner so that we can actually enjoy talking. Um, but it's nice when somebody else is feeding him mm. because, you know, we can actually relate at that stage. So there are a lot of those different things. Another question. Oh, we've got one down here, just to think you were first. Stand up, oh, otherwise Carrie-Anne will get angry at you. No. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name's Rachel. I wanted to ask you about the writing process of the mm. book and did you enjoy the process, especially because your life has hitherto been sort of on the stage mm. and writing is such a solitary occupation and very different. I wondered if you could comment on that. And you love sitting still, oh. don't you? <laughs> I really am terrible at it because I'm not the sort of personality that loves to sit at a desk and just do that and write and write. I, I, I've got the attention span of about yay big. Um, but 
it is a, a, a mission I accepted. John wanted me to do it as well. I also had the advantage with this particular book of having uh, photographs that I've always loved to take photographs when we had film. Um, <laughs> two for ones at the chemist. Uh, and I've got, and I put them in scrapbooks. <gasps> go figure, now they're in cyberspace. Uh, so I could go through photograph albums of, for, for 35 years and go, oh, what were we doing there? What was that? And he's got a great memory, so he could give me the backstory again. And as John also said, uh, did for me, um, was create scrapbooks of my career since 1980. And I could chronicle my career. So then in between that, I could talk about the issues and what was between everything else. So that gave me a really good basis to start from. But no, I, I don't find writing easy. Um, sometimes, all of a sudden, stuff is easy and I've gone, oh, piece of cake. The next day you're going... <laughs> so I, I don't find it particularly easy and I find it a real discipline. But I've always been a disciplined person. So I did it, but it took 12 months. If nothing else, you have to get the book for the photos. <laughs> it, just to go celebrity spotting, for one, um, but the outfits. Oh, Carrie-Anne. Yeah. Hasn't the crimping iron got something to be said for? <laughs> but you're a bit of a hoarder. You've kept so many of your amazing gowns and dresses and, mm. what, 30-plus logies or something? Uh, yeah, I've yeah. got a few. <laughs> Big shoulder pads. <laughs> yeah. There, there's, uh, I don't know. I, I just don't like throwing things away. <laughs> Who's a hoarder? Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, pretty much. Who thinks that they would have more sequins in their wardrobe than Carrie uh, Anne? No. no, I'm sorry. No. no I, I rule that covered. roost. You do. Another question? I yeah. know there was one back. Oh. Okay. Uh, There's a microphone yeah. right there. Now and there can. is one lady just back um, there as well. Yeah. Um, this is to both of you. And um, Ali, first of all, I'm an avid listener to the ABC and oh. I thoroughly enjoy you in the mornings. Oh, thank you. My boss's number is zero <laughs> four. <laughs> and I really enjoy the way you include your husband. You <laughs> refer to my husband and you too, Kerri-Anne. You've just mentioned your husband. I've listened to the interviews. You've both mentioned your husbands just by saying, my husband, I'm a happily married lady of 57 years and I've never had Were any you three? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 77. Stand up. Wow. I'm sorry. Just stand. What's your name, sorry? Maureen. Maureen. Please stand up, Maureen. Come on, Come please. On, don't be embarrassed. I'm not bragging about you Don't be age. embarrassed. Stand up, Maureen. I will have to come down. Yay. I'm sorry, 77. <laughs> Excuse me. Anyway, what I, I know, your fitness regime. <laughs> I, I have never experienced any domestic violence. I have a wonderful husband and that's why I've picked it up when you've both spoken to each other and you by yourself. I can pick the love with mm. both of you because of the way mm. you say my husband because that's how I feel about my husband. Oh, and I met nice. him when I was 15. Mm. And we were married at 19. Wow. And we've had a wonderful life. We have our arguments too, but we have a way of dealing with our life. And mm. it's a lovely thing for me to hear that other ladies 
love their husbands because of the domestic violence nowadays. Mm. So well done, girls. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Tell you what, if I can only thank get you. him to shut the cupboard doors and turn the light switches off, we'll be away. <laughs> um, hello, um, I'm Liz. And Kerri-Anne, what one piece of advice on reflecting on your life would you give your teenage self? Oh. <sighs> it, you know, there's, there's so much because you make decisions as you go along the best with with the best intentions with the most knowledge that you have at the time um i'm not a huge one on reflection i don't like i haven't been good at looking back i'm i like going forward you can only ever make those decisions with the information you have or you know the ambition ambition is not a dirty word Everybody these days goes, ooh, they're terribly ambitious. And I'm going, yes! <laughs> I think that's a wonderful thing to have. But other people ha – it depends whether you use it for good or evil uh, on, on, on how you treat other people. Um, just remember the people you're meeting at, at 15, 18, 25 in your work life, you are very likely to know them when, you know, they're, you're 45, 55, 65. So be nice. <laughs> Play nice. Let's head up the back. There's, there is one lady just right there who has had a hand up for the last couple go. of times. Oh, Merry Christmas. My name's Ooh. Julie. Um, Hello. I was just wondering, you're a Virgo, aren't you? September I'm the 22nd, you're on the cast, aren't that, you? Yep, very last day of Virgo, yep, beginning Libra. Completely more, mixed uh, up. Virgo or Libran? Mm -hmm. uh, Virgo, Libran. Uh, what am I more of? Um... I have no idea because I, I know my husband's a Virgo yep. and he's right smack dab in the middle. Yep, yep. I never believed in a lot of that mm -hmm. until Karen Morgold did his stars once 35 years ago. And all I gave Karen Morgold was the time of birth and the date in the Northern Hemisphere. She came back with a personality profile on my husband that was absolutely <laughs> perfect. <laughs> absolutely rigid, you know, and, and organised. His suits were an inch apart. He, he actually puts white socks in the white socks drawer. Who uh, knew? I, 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 Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> he is just methodical. He was methodical beyond belief. And she analysed that. Me, I apparently, she says, I have a Gemini ascendant, which is your face to the world, which... Uh, I guess I took that as meaning I could be anybody I liked. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what it means. Virgo too, aren't you? Sorry, I'm, Virgo? Yeah, I'm, and I'm on the cusp at the other end. Oh. So I'm a cusp yeah, of Leo Virgo, which I'm, I don't know, passionally uh, perfectionist. I don't know. Can so, I just yeah, ask I'm a bit one, the same. one more question? Mum was wanting to know too. Mark Walsh. Did you have much to do with him? With, sorry? Mike Mark Walsh. Walsh? Um, I, I, not a lot. Um, I have seen him on several occasions over the years. Um, charming guy. In fact, I saw him more recently. He spends most of his time or half of his time in Ireland where he has a lot of theatres. He also owns theatres in Melbourne and Sydney. So he does come back uh, regularly. Who was your favourite person to work with? Who, who, who did you... Who taught you the most, maybe? Um... I've got to say, Mike Gibson, when I sat with Mike mm. Gibson, who was a sports guy who came from Channel 9. Gibbo. 
Gibbo. Mm -hmm. Wonderful writer, great personality. And when he came to Channel Nine, to, yeah, to, um, to, from Channel 9 to Channel 10, he wanted to do Good Morning Australia. It was his choice. I was just lucky that he liked me. Um, but I remember him talking about writing. He said, just write how you speak. And that's how I've always tried to address my writing skills. Mm. We've got time for one or two more, so... Yep. Hi. Hi, my name's Ange. You have been a leading TV personality for many, many years um, and a leading female in a very male-dominated environment. The recent um, pay disparity in t uh, the Today Show with Lisa Wilkinson with being one of the leading reasons why she left because she wasn't receiving equitable pay. What do you have in, regard, in a comment regarding perhaps some of that or regarding equality and equity between men and women in the TV industry? Well, how much was Gibbo earning when he was doing mm. the same show that you were? Gibbo was... Um, and, and I had no issue. I was just glad to still have a job. But in 1988, he was um, seconded from Channel 9 to 10 for $1.3 million a year. Big money back then. Yeah, yeah, and I was probably on 150 or 200. But forget television because television pay for presenters is just not part of the real world. The gender pay issue has got nothing to do with television personalities because it's just on another planet. And I've been saddened that I think it's taken away from the real issue of gender pay uh, disparity for real people. Women at the coalface trying to do jobs to put food on the table, uh, a roof over their kids' heads, who don't get the shifts that they want or the hourly rate that they want. Even kids coming out of university with degrees will go into the same jobs as a male counterpart and still be earning 13 or 16% less. Their current figures. That is the pay disparity rate. Nothing to do with TV stars. Um, and a lot's been written about it. And, you know, anybody who can really try and mess with the TV executive and get money out of them, I'm all for. <laughs> um, but that said, it's, it's, it's just another argument altogether. Um, uh, Carl got lucky and got tried to be seconded by Seven and stayed and got lots of money and, you know, it went like this over ten years. But the, I did not, I didn't like the way it was, uh, took the focus off what real uh, pay issues are for women. Uh, and that is in the real world. So we're just going to go up the back for one last question. Anybody up there? Yep. Right. See, we're going to make you work all <laughs> the way over the back. Back corner. Beautiful. Hello. Hello, my name's Nicola. Um, just wondered, what was your favourite interview ever? Who did you enjoy interviewing the most? Oh, I've got to say, there have been so many. I've been so lucky. Um, if you're talking a celebrity interview, uh, fabulous people, uh, Robin Williams has to be just sitting opposite a genius is just fabulous. Uh, and watching him 
especially, uh, supposed to come for six or seven minutes, he stayed 56. <laughs> but to see him go through this, th this manic, so he cried, he laughed, he, he was energised, literally like, um, you know, a man possessed, which he was. So living in that mind must have been horrible. But at the other end of the scale, a lot of more memorable interviews every year, um, especially on mornings, we found a, a, a group out of Queensland um, and this guy and his wife who fell on hard times as farmers and we got some support from a, a company, it was in fact Toyota, so we wanted to give kids prezzies for Christmas and every year or for a month before Christmas when we wound up, we would fly people in to talk about how hard it was on farms. And I still remember this young husband and wife who had small children. These kids had never seen rain. Never seen rain. Their parents were going through such a shocking time. And all I remember is this guy sitting next to his wife crying because he had to tell his kids they couldn't afford Christmas this year. I mean, that sort of stuff breaks your heart. And when you saw during that era of drought the, the hardship that these people went through, that sort of gets burned into your memory. And the guy who started this organisation fell on hard times and tried to commit suicide um, and then realised that there were better things he could, he could do and he's been doing that for, for several years now. So, uh, yeah, there... They're the most heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time as talking to, to famous people. Uh, for, those, for those at the back, just wanted to know about yeah. retirement. I guess extension to that, Kerry Ann, if someone came to you right now and said, I've got a TV show I'd like you to host, would you jump at it? Well, um, to answer your question, uh, you know, I have no intention of retiring. I, I think I'd, um, I'd go nuts. And I think one of the reasons John pushed me into writing this book, because he knows if I'm busy, I'm dangerous. LAUGHTER uh, so, now I have to do something. So retirement is what? Retirement is what you want to do. Retirement for most people is doing the stuff you like to do. Yes, uh, spending more time with John uh, is, is fabulous. Um, and, and we will manoeuvre that and some months are, uh, are better than others. Um, I, have, I don't want to retire. Uh, I, I will always create something that I need to be busy doing, whatever that may be. Uh, and in terms of television, I'll never go back to Monday to Friday setting concrete. Mm -hmm. I did two th uh, 80, 81 to 2011, 30 years, five days a week. And I loved it, but it is an absolute grind. Um, but it was fabulous. But I just, I, I've been there, done that. Mm. Um, I love a chat, love doing interview things. So I would never say never, but no, I have no desire to go back to that that sort of television. Uh, but, yeah, spending time with John, his golf's just shocking at the moment, though. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being evil. You see, John and I have these evil, evil jokes between each other uh, at times, so uh, do forgive me. 
Well, I think on behalf of all of us here, we are very glad that you did that grind, that Monday to Friday, the mm. 30 years of television, inviting us into but your life. I did life. love it. Yeah, inviting us into your life. And now, sharing a little bit more of it as well, please put your hands together for Kerry Ann Cannelly. Thank you. There's so much more we could have spoken about, but don't forget, um, thanks to Booked at North Adelaide, you can actually grab your copy out here and then Kerri-Anne will be signing out there. Now, if the line's a little bit too big, don't forget the cafe. That's actually just open just for us, so feel free to go and get yourself a drink, wine, uh, or something else to eat as well. But in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your night. Have a safe journey home, and thank you so very much. And ladies and gentlemen, please thank Ali. What a great girl. Thank you. Thank you. This City of Marion Libraries podcast was recorded live at the Marion Cultural Centre Domain Theatre. Our music is by Brett Menadieu. If you like what you hear, please like and rate us on iTunes. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, where we are at City of Marion Libraries, to find out when the next City of Marion Libraries podcast episode will be available. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.